We live in a world where the news is at our fingertips, where we're one click or swipe away from the latest headlines. But how often do we stop swiping and scrolling and just listen? It's the difference between knowing what's in the headlines and understanding how it got there. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take, Al Jazeera's daily news podcast, where we bring you the context and the people behind the global stories that matter. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Richard Vincent Mercer, wow. OC. Thank you for reading my Wikipedia entry. I do my homework over here. <laughs> That's good. Thank you for being here. I'm happy to be here. You know this part of town. A little bit. Yeah, for sure. The alleys. The, the alley. alleys. Yeah. The graffiti alley. Yeah, the graffiti alley. was a great gift to me, the graffiti alley. They treated me very well over the years. When we started the Mercer Report, we knew only knew two things. We were going to do the road. Yeah. But we were going to do the rant. And that was really important. And just logistically, the question was, where do we do the rant? And we found these graffiti alleys that were literally a three-minute drive from the broadcasting center. As beautiful as the alleys are, it was challenging for a couple of just logistical reasons. There's a lot of uh, entrances to actual functioning businesses, of course. So the trucks are backing up, beep, 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 which would ruin a take. And as you know, there's nothing worse than the beep, beep, beep. There was that. There's a sex trade going on there. There's rats. Over time, it became a gallery. Really, worse than the sex trade or the rats or the beeping of the trucks were the art students with the cameras because you couldn't really (laughs) – Like, they didn't really belong there. Yeah. You know, everyone else did. And that became super popular. As you know, it's a gallery, and I'm I'm pleased for the artists, obviously. They got a steady stream of of, uh, gawkers. It's like a cross-section of Toronto there. It's definitely – yeah. Yeah. Are we cool? I've I've done – I'm coming up on a 1,000 episodes, and I – Are we cool? I can't remember – I've been talking about Canadian media people for 10 years now. Oh, honestly, I have no idea. Great. Now, my partner – Yeah. I think we are cool because my partner said, oh, you should do that because my partner has a memory, whereas I don't. Like I'll say, oh, I like that guy. Oh, yeah, yeah, we should talk to him. And he'll say, yeah, do you remember what he said on your opening in the second year of the season? Do you remember that? (laughs) And then he'll tell me. And I was like, oh, did he? You need someone. Or sometimes you bump into people. Yeah. And you hear, they're like, oh, they're a little kind of weirded out because, you know, they said you were the most boring person in Canada. And my takeaway is like, well, they'll be really upset to know that I didn't even notice. (laughs) That is a really good skill. You know what it's like making content all the time and and being critical. And I can't remember what I said a month ago. But um, when somebody says something nasty about me, I'm not – I'm not like you. I'm not stoic. I know it. I have a list. I don't forget. I don't have a list. That's good. I don't have a list. And two of the most successful people that I've seen in politics, Justin Trudeau being one of them, not this week, of course, um, I just watched him from afar and I heard this about him, but I did spend a lot of time with Belinda Stronach because we were involved in an anti-malaria effort together and we became friends. And I was amazed when she was in public office, first as a conservative, then changed of course, crossed the floor, became a liberal. A lot of vitriol around that, as you can imagine. She didn't care a bit. People said the worst stuff. Right. And it was thus literally water off a duck's back like you cannot even imagine. Like not even a little tiny bit. If I was an heiress to the Stronach fortune, I could brush that aside as well. Well, no. No, a lot of people, just because of their position or their wealth, or they can still have a very thin skin. Oh, even more so. And, and apparently Trudeau is the same way. Apparently he doesn't care uh-huh. at all, which this week 
is probably going to serve him very well. <laughs> uh, I did read your Wikipedia page and I might right. have even done a little bit more research than that. And right. I realized we actually have something in common. What's that? You burst onto the scene as a media critic. You had a very angry take on a <gasps> newspaper columnist. Yeah. You I went further. Say, I didn't know where you were going with that. But yes, I guess I did. You took it further than I've ever dared. You said like this guy needs to die. I didn't say he needs to die. Although I subtitled my one-man show, Charles Lynch Must Die, which is only the kind of thing a 19-year-old would do. I think like my if, paraphrasing is fairly accurate. If if a young person did that today, I would be that yeah. member of the establishment going, you cannot do that. That is crossing a line. But I was 19. I was an angry young man. Yeah. I took the bait. I fully admit I took the bait. His tongue was in his cheek when he said all the terrible things about Newfoundland for the most part. But uh, he, of course, became a huge supporter of mine. Mm -hmm. And my one-man show, for viewers who are not ancient and didn't happen to be going to the theater at the time, uh, it really did make my career. It went from being a small show in a 80, 70-seat theater in a garage in Ottawa to a pretty substantial Canadian tour, played here at the factory for – Eight weeks with a built-in holdover. It played Vancouver's Cultural Center. I spent an entire year touring the show. And everywhere I went, Charles Lynch, the guy in the subtitle, Charles yeah. Lynch Must Die, he and I would go on the radio together and we would scream at each other. He would say, like, he's made me the Solomon Rushdie of Newfoundland. He's put a fatwa on my head. And he loved it and I loved it and we sold lots of tickets. It became performance. At a- Absolutely. By the end of it, it was a dog and pony show. We had – we had it all worked out. It's good for him and good for you. He but it started it. off with a lot of vinegar. Like, you, you know, that's a pretty big swing to take. But but it, sure. more so than the live event, perhaps, you got the attention of the CBC and they put you on the air debating this. Yeah. Like, this is some like – That was the other big thing that happened. I mean, to make a long story short, I had this show about the Meech Lake Accord of all things. Yeah. A big chunk of it. And the Meech Lake Accord was dominating headlines. But journalists, rightly so, they were struggling because – the story was changing, but it was still a constitutional crisis. It was a little bit boring. And boring suddenly as, we had this show yeah. and they started referring to the show and the show became a thing. And and then Midday said, well, why don't you guys go on television and debate the Meech Lake Accord? This is a very familiar problem for me to take something that matters a great deal yeah. but comes across as a dry policy issue that it's hard to engage people with. Yeah. And here you have like a personal conflict or at least the appearance of one. Yeah. Here's this young this young upstart who's taking on one of the most powerful newspaper columnists. They're going to yell at each other. This guy this guy must die and they're going to like it really breathes life and gets people engaged in something. Yeah. I don't know if they knew what was going to happen, but they were having to cover Meech day after day and someone said, "Right. Okay, there's this columnist and there's this kid." And I was – I don't know if I've ever been more terrified in my life. You don't look terrified. In the clip – Oh, I the, can't – you watch the clip? Oh, well, I've never – no, I don't want to watch it. I, 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 want to, I want to return to this journey from angry young man to establishment. You called yourself a member of the establishment. I think that's right. accurate. But first, let's absolutely have a look at this clip. I, I, I'm sorry. I haven't – I honestly – I don't think I've ever looked at it. OK. Here we go. The perpetrator, Rick Mercer – is with us from St. John's. The victim, Charles Lynch, is with us from Ottawa. Now, Rick Mercer, You're like licking your chops here waiting for the guy. <laughs> not. Look at this. Go into a little detail. What was it about it that just drove you out of your mind? No, I missed it. I, I, I'm, I'm, I, I assure I'm you I am not this. licking my chops. I'm terrified. Rick Mercer is with us from St. John's. The victim, Look at that. 
There, there, there is. <laughs> it does look like I'm licking. Demonstrable my licking of the. Yeah. You can't imagine how terrified I am. This is a man who's the former head of the Southern News Service. He wrote funny columns near the end of his life, but a giant intellect and certainly had a grip on policy. And I was a kid who was pissed off. I didn't feel like I could get in there and debate him on the intricacies of Meech. I was terrified. You look like you've been waiting your whole life for that moment and you're having a grand time. Well, that's great. And that's interesting because, again, I've never looked at it. You know, we all have a titch of the imposter syndrome. And I often came through something like that and thought, God, how did I get through that? And people still hired me. But you're right. I look like an incredibly confident young man who's just dying to take this guy on. Which CBC is liked opposite. what they saw. And, uh, and, and basically that, that was almost like the template for uh, decades of what followed. I, uh, they, I, conti- I started doing, I guess, precursors to the rant on Midday mm-hmm. and a few other shows. And when – what became this hour's 22 minutes was being discussed. George Anthony at the CBC ensured that I was in the room. It's so interesting to me, these cycles. You look like a 50 Cent fan to me. Are you a fan of the rapper 50 Cent? No. Not, and this, don't take that the wrong way. He burst on I'm not a fan of anything in the last like, 25 years. All right. More of a big L guy. All yeah. right. But he burst onto the scene with a like unauthorized, you know, no major labels street tape called How to Rob. And, you know, right. we, we know about rappers, like, opening up beef with other rappers. Sure. He went for it and did a song in which he name-checks about 50 different famous rappers and how he would rob them. Right, okay. In one track, he right. insulted 50. Right, so he opened, up, he opened up 50 fronts. 50 fronts, and four of them, like Jay-Z, Wyclef Jean, they took, they responded. Took and oh. all of a sudden, they're responding to 50 Cent. He's in suddenly, he's in a... Serious war. What? There was a scene in Larry Sanders years ago. I'm not going to be able to quote it, but it was Larry was dating. I can't remember who it was. Sharon Stone or something. Uh-huh. And Artie, the producer, was saying, you know, if you get a superstar and then a star, the star will take heat away from the superstar and you will get bigger. And that's exactly what he obviously did and what I did. I was in a ongoing battle with this guy who was a legend. Yeah. He was a legend in Canadian media. And I was a 19-year-old kid. But he was generous enough to play with you and, and he uh, yeah. he got some shine off of it but built up your star as well. Oh, he was incredibly generous. And I will just quickly say, just because I think it speaks so much to Charles, when I was doing the show in Vancouver, he started writing columns about he was quite sick. And I checked with people I knew, and they were like, oh, no, he's very, very sick. Like, he could be gone within a matter of weeks. And you're touring a show that I was says touring a show he that must die. Charles Lynch must die. So I called him up. <laughs> we didn't speak on the phone much. We weren't that close. So right. I called him up, and I said, oh, we're moving into Vancouver, and uh, I'm going to take the subtitle off the show now. I think I've reached a point. It's just show me the button. I'll push it. And he said, why would you do that? And I said, well, Charles, you've written these columns about how you're dying, and no offense, not to make it all about me, but if you die while I'm in Rick. Vancouver yeah. doing this show, yeah. this is a very bad look. And he said, "How you know? How long is your run?" And I said, I- "I'm going to be out there for the next two months." And he said, "I promise you, I won't die." And so we stuck with Charles Lynch must die. And then when he did die, many years later, in fact, I was doing 22 minutes, and I got an envelope in the mail, and I opened it, and it was the bulletin from his funeral. And there was a sticky note attached and it said, Dear Rick, for your files, regards, Charles Lynch. 
Excellent. Like, That's he got excellent. the last joke. Yeah. He got the last laugh. And on his deathbed, I guess, he wrote that and gave it to his son and said, mail that to Mercer when I'm gone, which is great. That's amazing. Um, 50 Cent, to return to the focus right. of our conversation, right. is, is now some decades later – I think you know did the Super Bowl. He, right. he, he's like certainly the establishment of hip hop, and you know there's an old joke on The Simpsons like 20 years ago, like the Doctor and Mrs. Dre uh, Center for the Performing Arts or something. Right. Yeah, and yeah, that's yeah. actually true now. Right. Um, the road from being the kind of like violent upstart to being establishment that cycle exists in the states, but it takes some time. It didn't take quite as long. Like you, like you, you, you kind of rattled those cages and got in there real quick. Well. This hour's 22 minutes happened. Yeah. So I had this platform then and I stayed with that show for eight years. And the show wasn't establishment, quote unquote, to start, but it became pretty – I don't know if mainstream is the right word, but it became very popular with really high ratings and was pretty influential I think at the time. And so whether we were establishment, I have no idea. But certainly with the Mercer report – as much as I'm loath to admit it, I realized that I was absolutely no longer the saucy young outsider who would take on someone like Charles Lynch and write Charles Lynch must die. How, how do you mature into that? Because you still have as your Twitter bio, anger is my cardio. You don't seem that angry. No, no and you seem fact, like you've got much to fact, be angry about. Twitter is my – you know, anger is my cardio as my Twitter line is – it's more because I'm lazy and I haven't gotten around to changing it. <laughs> I mean, how angry can I be? I drive a Volvo. Right. Like, you know, um, is it important? To I, stay still angry? Angry. Is, I still get angry. I still get angry. Should sure. one be angry? Like, like I, I, I have lots of things to feel very grateful about too, and it's ridiculous to a lot of people the idea that I. But it's like, if the anger is what got you there, whether it's fueling one's comedy in your case, or often the reason why that escalates people is because like they have something to say. It's somebody yeah. on the outside who's like dispossessed or marginalized, coming from Newfoundland, being young, being young and angry, being young queer and like all of those things is kind of arms you with that energy that kind of got mm -hmm. you in the door. Do you feel like that's like a childish thing to put away or is that an important thing to hold on to? I think it's uh, it's two things. I certainly hold on to it. Recently, I started following on Facebook. Someone said, oh, you got to follow this site. I won't say what it is. It was kind of a confession site, one of those, and there was just a lot of weird confessions on there that were kind of funny and odd and then the comments were kind of funny and odd. But as these things do, it has since evolved and it's people – I'd say 80 percent of them now are no longer weird confessions like, you know, I slept with my brother-in-law at my sister's wedding. Is that bad? It used to be that. And it's it's moved into people just venting about how hard they are uh, struggling yeah. and how difficult a time they're having and how they feel with everything that they're about to go underwater. And it's heartbreaking. And um, now I just get angry every single time I read that group, whereas it used to just be amusing and weird. And now it just makes me angry. So I, I still get angry all the time. And that angers me. You know, you read about all of these people who are struggling – to the extent that people are struggling and, um, you know, it makes you not feel great about the country right now. Mm -hmm. And I know people have always struggled, but I feel like in my lifetime anyway, this is a, this is a completely new thing. Yeah. And I think that you can see it. You can see it on Queen Street right by Graffiti Alley. But, but, but then I get reports. You can see it everywhere. Every yeah. single city. Yeah. Every single downtown core. Uh, there's a lot of drugs, of course. And I feel like a crazy old man now going, it's the drugs. 
because people said that when I was 18, 19 too. But it's uh, with the fentanyl and the oxy and all that, it's a completely different animal, right? But, but the, the leading politician who is, is, who is campaigning on that issue, it's like history repeats itself again and again. The, the, the leading answer to these problems is to further remove a social safety net. And that seems to be yeah, resonating. And, I, and I'm not an expert on this, but I can totally understand why a leading politician would start saying things like Canada's broken and pointing at tent cities and saying, we're just going to clean it up because what a simple solution that would be. And I think everyone looks at these tent cities and these, these situations and they feel terrible and they just don't know what the solution is. They just know it's getting worse. Now, I don't prescribe to, well, just clean it up because I know that that's just not the case. That's just not going to happen. These are people you're talking about. But I can totally understand why he's doing it. See, I, so this is what I oscillate between as well because there is sort of this um, – for me, like kind of middle-aged kind of like shrug of like what do you expect the guy to do? He's trying to win and yeah. you know this is what has people concerned and it's, it's hanging right there as low-hanging fruit. You point to it and you say, look, we've got a prime minister here for many years and this is what the country looks like. They would do it on the other side if it was the conservatives in power. Uh, that's just the obvious thing. And then by the same token – it has real implications when he says these safe supply programs are to blame for this and, yeah. and when I'm prime minister, we're going to get rid of them because I know that the data shows that that's going to kill people. So it's like do you get angry for somebody who's just performing their role? Like it just feels often like we don't even have options to actually deal with the real problems that are happening because everyone's just kind of running their, their like their algorithm. That's exactly what they're doing. And if you're a liberal leader, you're sitting down and you're saying, okay, if we have this problem, what is something that will resonate with the people that can fit inside our liberal ideology? And if they're conservative, they do the same thing. And I don't know if the leader ever sits and goes, well, hang on up, but I don't that, – that doesn't square it with me. That's not what I think. I think they're just looking at the data. Yeah. That's what they're doing. And that's what Trudeau is doing. Well – I don't think Trudeau's doing much of anything right now. But if his head was in the game, that's what he would be doing. And that's absolutely what Poiliev is doing. What should we be doing? And when, I, when he first said Canada's broken, yeah. again, I thought – I'd heard him say Canada feels broken. And then I heard him say Canada is broken. And I had one of those moments where I went, oops, he just made a mistake. He said Canada is broken when he's supposed to say Canada feels broken. But clearly it tested well because he's kept it up. He keeps moving the needle. And it keeps yeah. working for him. Yeah. But if you read, going back to that Facebook group that I've been reading, mm -hmm. I can see how that message would be resonating with the people in that group because there's a lot of desperation there. Yeah. And they don't see a way through. And so when someone's offering a simple solution, you know, Doug Ford offered everyone, young people, a $500,000 home the other day. He was like a sales guy. He was like, I'm going to yeah. give you an 1,900-square-foot home with a basement you can rent out with a paved driveway and a fence backyard for under $500,000. And I love that, a paved driveway. Like, he threw that in. Yeah. Paved driveway. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, therapy online that has served over 3 million people around the world. And BetterHelp is available here in Canada. A lot of people have various blocks or reasons why they don't just reach out for that help. And one thing you'll hear people say is they just don't have the time. I would like to mount a different uh, argument here, which is that if you are talking to a mental health professional, if you're, if you're 
chatting with somebody about your life and about your priorities, you can clear away a lot of the clutter. You can actually find yourself with more time because you have a better sense of what's important to you. Like it's an investment that can pay off even in that practical way of, of organizing your life a bit better. These are some of the advantages in, in the long run of having something like BetterHelp in your life. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to the show, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Once again, it's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by AG1. Listen, taking care of your health is not always easy, but it should at least be simple. That is why for months now, I start every day by drinking AG1. I take a scoop of this green powder, I mix it in a canister with water, shake it up, and I drink it. I get hydrated and I get energized and focused and ready to take on the day knowing that I have vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics and a lot more. These are things that science tells us we need. They are also things that I don't necessarily get every day outside of my AG1. Listen, if there's one product that I'm going to recommend that will help you elevate your health, it's AG1. And that is why I have been partnered up with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try it now and you'll get a free welcome kit that includes a shaker bottle, canister, a metal scoop, along with five free travel packs. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 along with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. That is drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. Check it out. I think that there is some kind of like straddling of comedy and journalism. And I have to credit you as a pioneer of it. I mean, when, when the fake news comedy about politics guy who looks like an anchor but is actually taking the piss when you did that it was before that became a like mainstream genre everywhere it wasn't you know obviously uh saturday night live always had weekend update mm -hmm. but weekend update never ever tried to look like the news because they couldn't they would only had a little desk and a little bit of room but weekend update was never it was always popular with Saturday Night Live fans and yeah. obviously it launched Chevy Chase. But uh, according to Lorne Michaels anyway, who I don't know, but from what I gather, it was never a particularly popular part of the show with the mainstream audience and the network wasn't particularly into it either. It was just one of those weird idiosyncrasies. I didn't know that. I was a young comedy fan. I yeah, just lived I think, for Dennis think, Miller back, you know, just – Yeah, like, but I think even before that, I think yeah. it was just part of – Lorne Michaels' idiosyncrasy that he had this fake news thing going on. Turning that into a show. Yeah, why not just do another sketch? But your your, your project of like making that the show was a, a first, I guess. Yeah, they were the only they were the only people who were doing it. And uh, when we were creating the show, I was really inspired by a pilot that I'd seen. Someone gave me a VHS one time of like nine pilots that were never picked up that should have been. And uh, it was one of those VHSs like you could barely see the show. And there was a show called – I believe it was called – was it called This Just In? And I believe Peter Callahan was in the pilot. Uh -huh. But it was set in a newsroom and I think it was a knockoff of a, or a, a, a remake of a British show maybe. But anyway, to me it was a revelation because it was this kind of basic sitcom but then the news anchor sat down and then interviewed Ross Perot and they were using satellite footage of Ross Perot and actually doing an interview. And when I saw that, my mind, it, yeah. it melted. I just yeah. didn't know you could do that. And when we sat in the room creating 22 Minutes, 
there was this guy, Jeff Dion, who came to work with us, and he was a CBC News producer. He ran the Supper Hour News in Halifax. And I started asking him all these technical questions like, are there really all these raw interviews just floating around in space, and can we get them, and is it legal? It must be legal. This this show in the States did it. And he said, I think we could do that. And then he said, I will never work in news ever again. Like, this better work right, because right. I'll be murdered. And And that was a big part of the impetus to create the news desk. As this thing that I think you did first took off and became this really important thing in the States and, and from Jon Stewart to to Trevor Noah and then Samantha Bee and Hassan – like it just goes on and on. Michelle Wolf, like mm-hmm. there, there are many of these shows. It took on a very different form and a different time slot and different tone than your work in Canada. It was a late night thing in the States but it was a primetime family thing in Canada. Yep. It was uh, more of a niche cable thing in the States. It was CBC, everyone's network here in Canada. Yep. And they really tried to like keep that edge really sharp. They, yep. were, go- they were going for blood yep. in the States. And in Canada, eventually we have you palling around with politicians. Sure. Yeah. And they're in on the joke and they're not – they don't yeah. really come out of it humiliated. They never did. Uh-huh. They never did. In my stuff, they never did. Um, when I talked behind their back, they were often humiliated and I think that we did some very fine work that way. But when they were on the show, it was what I always referred to as a mutually parasitic situation. There was no doubt about it. Mutually parasitic. Yeah. You're like, feeding off them and they're feeding off yeah, you. absolutely. And they knew – the very first time we had a politician on, it was just a fluke. I was shooting at a Preston Manning rally. This was when Preston Manning first became – well, he was leader of the Reform Party. I think it was his first time in Nova Scotia, first time he ever went to eastern Canada. He was a very different person than the person he became. He had the thick glasses. He had this nasally voice. He was very, very droll. Not a lot of people paying attention to him in the east. Mm-hmm. A lot of rumors about him. Anyway, he was doing this rally and – we had never even thought of talking to a politician and I just went up to him at the end because no one was really talking to him. And I said, uh, can I just say to you, uh, when are you going to do an interview with this hour's 22 minutes? And you're going to look at me and say, I will never appear on this hour's 22 minutes and just storm off. And he said, OK. And we did that and we just put it at the end and the reaction in the audience was huge and I heard later that the reaction in the reform party was huge because they were like – you know, my son saw Preston on the show and right. apparently it's a cool show. They reached a different uh, demographic. Yeah. And uh-huh. so everything changed then. It just yeah. It just changed. And even even with Marg Delahunty, Mary Walsh, she would attack them and she would be vicious. My feeling was she could always say stuff that I wouldn't have been able to say anyway. She had this brilliant character who could do it. But they even came out of that good because they just stood there and took it. It was more about what she said as opposed to uh, – Well, what she said was she would eviscerate them. But yeah. then people would have great sympathy for them because this poor man is standing there while this woman is yelling at him. Yeah. And it wasn't like they a, would both come out on top. Again, they yeah. would both come out on it top. It wasn't like a Borat or LEG thing where he was like uh, setting them up to make fools of themselves. No. Contrast that with talking to Americans. Right. Those people didn't know what they were getting into. No. And they would look like dipshits. Do you think uh, – <laughs> America should be bombing Bouchard? Yes. Yes? Yes. Congratulations, Canada, for getting a McDonald's. Congratulations, Canada. 800 miles of paved road. How about uh, ground troops lining up and entering Gilles Duceppe? How do you feel about that? Got to do what you got to do. If we're going to get in, it might as well get in all the way. And how long do you think Gilles Duceppe could withstand the pounding? Not much longer. I always felt 
this was before YouTube. That's how old I am. I always thought these people will never see it. I don't know if I would have done it if I knew that they would possibly see it. And the first time I did Talking to Americans, again, it was a fluke. And we put it on television and the reaction was so huge. And my father called me and he said, I saw that Talking to Americans. My father never commented on anything I ever did. Like it was unheard of. And he said, I saw that Talking to Americans. And I said, oh, yeah, it's crazy. The reaction is crazy. He said, oh, yeah, well, you know, Jerry Travers called and asked if you're going to do it again. And the neighbors came over and they said they liked it and they're wondering if you're going to do it again. It's the most popular comedy special CBC yeah. ever aired. But then dad said, promise me you'll never, ever do that again. That's, that's terrible. <laughs> and then I said, OK. And then I didn't stop doing it for like three years. But you felt bad about it. He thought it was the worst thing. He was so deeply disappointed in me. I mean, I went back and forth because I, I found it funny. And then I was like, why would they know these things? No, why would they? What possible? I don't know who the the mayor of Louisville can talk. Like, it's as it's much relevant. That. It's not even that. It's like, of course we know who the president of the United States is. We live right next door to them. They're the biggest English market in the world. They matter. We don't. Yeah. Like, why would they know? Why would they know anything? So I felt conflicted things about this because I, I don't sit in judgment because you, you, you are a performer and a comedian and you do tons of material. You put out hundreds or thousands of broadcasts and then something right. takes off like yeah. crazy, right? I think it's more of a reflection of Canada. And I think you've said this. You said that the fact that this was so popular that supposedly nice Canadians, we took such unmitigated glee in that the, these Americans think yeah. that we have an igloo, a national igloo. Yeah, and they I think – I that know. We, you said this really revealed something small about us, you know. And, and well, we wanted to feel superior. We wanted to feel smug. We wanted to look down our nose. As far as it, a joke goes, it's not an original joke. People have been talking about Americans showing up at the border in you know August looking for the ski hill. Yeah, the, forever they, they, they since they the border's ignorant. been there, they look ignorant. Yeah, um, but I always felt, or at least I told myself, it was in good fun. These were early days too. People didn't know that people were pranking. It was before YouTube, like I say. Yeah. Now people would avoid anyone with a camera. But I would say, excuse me, excuse me. And they would, the Americans would go, no, nope, because they assumed I was the supper hour show. Uh-huh. No. Nope. And then I'd say, I have a question from Canada. And they would go, oh, okay. Right. Like they were all being polite to add. Yeah, they were actually injury. being nice to you. They were being nice. I think it says something about Canadians because there's, there's a mean spiritedness to like why that resonated. And then. There's a lack of mean-spiritedness in the kind of political humor that resonated and made your other work such a big hit. Like when you are in jammies at 24 Sussex with Stephen Harper. Yeah. And it was interesting to rewatch that clip because you are saying things to him that were highly critical things. You're asking questions that a journalist should ask. Why don't you let the cabinet ministers speak? Take a guy like Monty Solberg. Everyone likes Monty, you know, because he's a funny guy, had a blog. He's a good guy. Yeah, but since he's a minister, he's disappeared. I half expect to see him on a milk carton. Oh, he's out there talking to new Canadians, trying to get this immigration system. But then the idea is that he's sort of this like patient father who's exasperated with you and he puts you to bed and you're like in, in your jammies. You know, when I can't sleep, I count ridings. <laughs> He's not the fool in that scenario. You're, yeah. you're, you're playing the fool in that scenario. Yeah. That's a very big difference from how they set it up in American satire. I think it says more about us, you know? Well, I've been thinking about this because I have a book coming out, you know, in November. Do so you? It's about, uh, it's about my years on the road with the Mercer Report. And I talk about all those those shoots with various prime ministers. And the Harper one is a big one because 
a big part of my audience was just outraged. They were just could not believe I put Stephen Harper on television. But these are the same people who they didn't have any problem with Gretchen being on television uh-huh. or or you know any NDP leader being on television. But the fact that I would put Harper there was just infuriated them. We didn't expect it. We had a standing offer for him to come on the show and they wouldn't ever do it and we would throw some ideas and I guess the idea appealed to him that the conceit was I would be trying to do it an actual interview and he would start killing me with kindness like you know he would say like where are you staying tonight yeah I say I'm at a hotel you can't stay at a hotel stay with us you know are you hungry I'll make you a sandwich mm-hmm. and the joke was pretty obvious he despised the media and mm-hmm. he disliked people like me so he got it and the button was a really good button. The button, like being the last thing you see, was he shakes hands with his daughter, he shakes hands with his son, and then gives me a big hug, which was very self-deprecating because it was taking the the piss out of his very first day or two on the job as prime minister. He said goodbye to his children and, and shook, shook the their hand hands, yeah. and it became a huge story. He was characterized as this robot this man. Cold, this cold, guy. Yeah. yeah. You've talked about how politicians would strategically appear on your show. That yeah. Kretchen appeared with you in order to deflect headlines from Paul Martin. Uh, that was the most obvious. Yeah, like mutually parasitic. Yeah. They would use you. You'd, you'd I didn't see that one coming. Uh-huh. I always thought politicians would come on the show because they would look good. But with Kretchen, Kretchen came on the show He's and it was smart. a big deal. It was because he was the prime minister at the time and no prime minister had done that. And plus – we shot at Harvey. So it wasn't like I had a minute with him in his office. We yeah. shot across town in a restaurant. We took two hours of his day. This is it. This is where you always eat. Yeah, yeah. It's every 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> like clockwork. After yeah, you, sir. All right. Okay. Thank you. It was a big deal. And I thought he's doing it because he wants to look good. But it was budget day in Canada. And the prime minister's office released all these photos of Kretchen and I shoving burgers in our mouth. And th- that photo literally appeared on the front page of many newspapers in Canada, knocking Paul Martin off the front page. On the day that he destroyed the the, yeah, the, the deficit. It, yeah. It should have been a huge victory It should have been Paul, Paul Martin. Martin's greatest day. Kretchen, that crafty little it, fucker. It was very I, I kind of love him. I got to kind of like – I think that's how a lot of people feel. very crafty. You know, again, it's, 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 it's different. Um, and, and I also note that nobody replaced you. It's really – when Jon Stewart left, Trevor Noah came – you know, and then all the, there were rival shows. There were all yeah. kinds of other attempts. It became a format. Who's going to be the next satirical voice doing this fake news American politics thing? Was there even an attempt to have the next Rick Mercer? No, I, I thought – you know, the CBC asked me, was there anything I wanted to do next? But I was, I was ready to step out because if I wanted to stay on TV, I would have kept doing the same show. But I did think briefly, maybe I'll just – produce my show, Gerald and I would produce the show like we always produce the show. We just replace me. Yeah. And bring that to the CBC. But that was short lived because that just seemed like And they didn't do it on their own and nor did any other network go for and it. And I'm assuming I'm assuming people walk through the door of the CBC saying, Give me that time slot, please God, give me that time slot. It's not done like, there's like political satire now. How how many years are we into Trudeau now? Is it is it eight years, seven or eight years now? He's a very mockable prime minister. Yeah. I cannot think of a decent Justin Trudeau impersonation. So why can't Johnny satirize? Why can't Johnny dissent? What's wrong with Canadians that we we seem to be not interested? What, what's going on? Oh, no. When I was on tour the last time, 
or a second last tour, I guess, I was talking about all the, the Trudeau blackface photos that had surfaced. And when they reached number three, you would think number three is that, – that's going to take you up. Three photos, three blackface. blackface. And then I said photos. the greatest minds in the Liberal Party came together. How are we going to deal with this? And they came out. They said, he's not racist. He's just dumb. And then people were like, oh, OK. Oh, thank God. He's just dumb. And I remember performing that and I really felt like, what, what, it, like you haven't heard jokes about the prime minister before? There's just three black faces. I mean. And he won't, he, he won't put a number on how many more there might be out there. No. He can't recall. And, and My favorite thing about Justin Trudeau too is every time he gets caught doing something and all politicians get caught doing something. But it's always a time for us to reflect on our own selves. Yeah. You know, yes, there's a third photo of me in blackface. And Jesse, this is a time where you can reflect on your inherent <laughs> bias towards various races. Don't we all like, carry – aren't we all a little bit like, like – Well, this is not about – I don't know that this is – yeah. But he's very good at that. It's quite something. So – the media environment today versus the media environment uh, 10 years ago when, when I started taking shots. Yeah. Uh, and I remember before that walking into the CBC atrium and, and towering over me were the faces of Peter Mansbridge and George Strombolopoulos right. and Jean Gomeshi and Rick Mercer and Don Cherry, uh, Enright and Karoloff. They give them smaller yeah. pictures somewhere else. Radio. You know. Yeah, it's radio. Radio pictures, yeah. yeah. Uh, all gone yeah. from the scene. And similarly to that there is no real heir apparent to your role as the kind of like signature political comedy guy, no one's really taken their places. It feels really fractured and it's almost like hard to even know what or who to get angry at. If you were, if you were a young, angry 19-year-old looking for that like well-known figure – to take that big shot at. It's a very different environment right now and it feels like we don't have – however flawed that pantheon of personalities might have been or whatever I might have had to say about them 10 years ago, it's really strange right now. It's almost like there is no center. It's very hard to punch through. I actually did a fitty scent with my second one-person show. I kind of took the lesson of taking on with Charles Lynch and in my second one-person show, it took place in a post-apocalyptic world in Newfoundland where the, the, the Pickering – power plant melted and all of these Canadians had to come to Newfoundland. And I played this high lord executioner. There was this guy who was executing people we didn't want to let in. And I executed all of the the sacred cultural cows like Farley Mowat and Sharon Lawson Bram and and uh, even people uh, – Margaret Atwood, even people that I grew to adore. I mean I know who you're talking about. I don't know if my staff would know. All no. The- and now if you had to say – if you wanted to do that same act now and say, you know, list – these 10 Canadian iconic figures. Take that, Farley Mowat. And not like Drake because he's an international figure. Yeah. But like 10 uber Canadian inside of our border figures, you'd have a hard time. We uh, are coming up on this 10th anniversary and we w- are having a live show and we were like, who could we get on stage right. that would have that resonance? And the list was Justin Trudeau, Pierre Polyev, Christia Freeland. And none of them would do it. No. And then I couldn't think of anybody else. I'm like, I, you know, to actually have that like Canada is on st- – or you know, some significant personality right. of Canada is on stage here and we, we came up empty. It's a strange position to be in at a time when 
the country is in the shape that it's in. It's being challenged. Like yeah. figuring out who the heck we are is uh, an open question. Part of the project here is trying to figure out where to go from here and how we all talk to each other. And, uh, you know, I, I wonder because like it seems like you kind of have earned, uh, you know, a comfortable spot, establishment guy, I'm still doing comedy on the CBC. You've got a fan base across the country. You see this country on foot. Like, what do you see? Uh, and are you let's, – let's, let's leave anger aside for a second. Are you more, more or less worried than you were when you started? I'm probably worried about different things. I find it sad what you're saying about who is that figure we could bring out on stage that everyone would go, OK, we're in for a conversation now. When I started the Mercer Report, we did these celebrity tips where I would get a Canadian celebrity to – film a little segment that were inspired by World War II training videos and just teach Canadians something that they should do. And famously, Pierre Burton came on and rolled the joint. First of all, you need a good rolling service. May I suggest either the National Green or my latest book, Prisoners of the North. And I had uh, Margaret Atwood teach Canadians how to stop a hockey puck. I don't like to hot dog, but if the puck carrier is really putting lumber on it, then mama can get nasty. And Ty Domi, how to set a Thanksgiving table. Start with the basics. First, place settings. Dump and chase. Utensils <laughs> are placed outside. In. And it went on and on. And every time they would come up, you know, this celebrity tip featuring, and then you would see them, the audience would react because yeah. they knew who they were. We had a common We had language. a common, we knew who those people were. And you're right. I, I, well, I eventually stopped doing the celebrity tips because I ran out. But now I don't know who you would get at all. Yeah. It's tough. In part, I think that's the fault of the public broadcaster. That's the fault of the media in Canada. They don't like to promote their own. Even back in the day when Peter Zosky left radio, mm -hmm. again, I don't know if your listeners know who Peter Zosky is, but when Zosky left radio, there was a movement at CBC. Well, whoever replaces them, it's going to be called This Morning. We don't want people walking around going – it's the Zosky show. And there was a period in time where they didn't want anyone's name in the title. Yeah. And this is a thing in Canada which doesn't happen anywhere else in the world. This gets me angry because, of course, we always put my name in the title and we fought for that. And that wasn't because of ego. Honest to God, it was not because of ego. It was because we knew if we were going to build a brand, that would keep the show going and we needed to have my name as part of the title. Well, we needed to be Zosky. It's showbiz. Well, you, I, I might be partially to blame because there was a turn when Sturzberg took over the CBC and right. he was very into building a star system. Sure, yeah. And all that big head furniture of those big personalities was Sturzberg like, no, we are yeah. going to build these guys. And there was even a sense like, you know, billboards all across the country. Like some of these people, the ratings weren't very good, but the face was there. Like this guy's going to be famous yeah. whether you like it or not. Yeah. We'll <laughs> tell you who the stars were. Well, that was CBC in the 50s. And then uh, I think there was a lot written about host culture after the Gameshi scandal. Yeah. And when all of those personalities aged out or outstayed their welcome and Don Cherry and then Mansbridge, you know, what do they do at the National? Who's going to get the big chair? Four people get it, ensuring that nobody actually gets famous. Yeah. And now – And talk about inertia. Yeah. It, 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 Make it, a decision. Uh, it's very Canadian. there's four people on the list. Even when they decide to like, OK, Janelle Massa, it doesn't seem like it's the prize that it once was. And those people are like, eh, I can take it or leave it. They're kind of like, I, yeah. I, you know, I did that for a little while. Now I'm going to go do something else. It's not just the CBC. Shaw yeah. famously does not put 
actors' names on their posters. And I would sometimes, you know, they'd have half-page ads in the Globe and Mail. And one of the great Canadian stage actors in the lead role, and I would take a picture of it and tweet it, can anyone tell me this guy's name? Because it's not on the poster. Right. And then people would just politely tell me what his name is. But the point was always lost. Never mind his name is not above the title. His name is not on the poster. Yeah. And that's absurd to me. Like, that's not the way Broadway works. That's not, not the way major festivals anywhere else in the world Anything, work. anything in this. Lisa Laflamme, number one broadcast, just mm-hmm. like uh, one of the very few personalities that everybody in the country knows. Well, we got a real problem here. Got to get rid of her. Yeah. I mean, that does seem like a, a specifically Canadian pathology. It does indeed. Mm-hmm. It's a weird one. Rick, this has been really fun. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks for having me.